There is a story that heralds from the Civil War period of American history about a particular Union Army captain by the name of Robert Ellicombe. As the story goes, Ellicombe was stationed at Harrison's Landing, Virginia, at a moment in the conflict between the North and the South, in which the two armies were squared off against one another across a narrow strip of of land, a no-man's land, so to speak. As nightfall came and the shadows lengthened and it became harder and harder to see, Ellicombe was along the lines and was listening to the sounds coming from the battlefield out in the center. And he heard there the the unmistakable wails of a soldier dying uh, exquisitely, excruciatingly in pain. And, and, and Ellicombe was moved with compassion for this poor soul. He didn't know whether he was Confederate or Union. He didn't particularly care. Somebody, somebody important was out there and they were dying alone. And so Ellicombe decided that he would go out and retrieve that man. And, and crawling along the ground with bullets still whizzing over his head, he managed to find his way out now. As the, as the moans of that soldier grew dimmer and dimmer, he was finally able to locate him. It was so dark, he couldn't see any, anything, but he could just make outline, out the outline of the man, and he managed to get his hands on him, and he dragged him, and he dragged him, and he dragged him all the way back to the Union lines where medical assistance could be rendered. Once back in camp, and as a lantern was brought, several things became clear. First, this was actually a Confederate soldier. Secondly, he hadn't made it. He had succumbed to his injuries. But the third fact was the most powerful of all. And it blanched the face of Captain Ellicombe as he looked down and by that lamplight recognized that this Confederate soldier was his son. Apparently, the boy had gone to the South to study music. He was a wonderful musician. And he had enlisted in the Confederate Army unbeknownst to his father. And now he lay dead in that same father's arms. Captain Ellicombe, the next day, went to his commanding officers and requested permission to give his son a military burial. And the superior officers denied the request, at at least in part. They said, "There's, there's no way we can do that for someone who is part of the enemy forces. It's too hard on morale here for the rest of the troops, but we can help a little bit, they said. We can't give you the martial band that's normal for these occasions, but we'll grant you one, one musician at the graveside. Captain Ellicombe selected a bugler. Because he had found in the pocket of his son's uniform a scrap of paper. Remember, the son was a musician. And the boy had scrawled in his own hand across that piece of paper... 24 notes. And it was, it was that set of notes 
that the captain asked the bugler to play. And this was the tune that sounded out over that grave. How many of you recognize the tune? We all do. We all do. The story of Captain Ellicombe is it's said now to be something of a legend. There are other theories about how and where this uh, tune arose. We know it was 1862. We know it was at Harrison's Landing. And we know more than that, that that tune has become extremely important to all of us. It has been played countless times at the gravesides of people, at military burials. It, it, you can understand why legends and stories of various kinds would gather around that particular song, because it, it somehow touches the heart in a deep way. It, it, it's a... It's a touchstone for any of us who have ever known the melancholy of endings, who have ever known the darkness of loss, who have ever felt the lengthening shadows of our own mortality. Taps has become very significant to us all. I, I, I heard that Taps was played at a graveside just this past Friday where a a memorial was held to mark the passing of a, of a soldier, of a wonderful elder, of a marvelous man, a grandfather, a great-grandfather of this church who will not be there at the Easter celebration, around the family table at least, on this day. I could imagine hearing the, the lament of that tune as it was being played out over any number of the many different disasters and tragedies that have marked our headlines and filled our news reports over this past week. I could see that sweet lament, hear it lilting over the faces of those grieving parents we've too often seen. Represented in this very room today, within the sound of my voice, I know our, our marriages and parent-child relationships and personal dreams over which that bugle call seems to be playing at this very moment. I came across a blog just this past week that really touched my heart and brought to mind this tune again. It was written by a man named Derek Miller who confessed there that he had lost his own personal war with the encroaching darkness, with the fall of night. And this is what Miller says in the blog, here it is, I'm dead, and this is my last post. I died of complications from stage four metastatic colorectal cancer. We all knew this was coming. Miller had been battling this disease for several years. He had used this blog as a way of of providing a journal that would become almost a public artifact of his life and maybe a touch point for other, who, others who were suffering this kind of an illness. 
And he'd asked a friend to post his final words when the nighttime finally overtook him and silenced him. And this is how he ends it. I haven't gone to a better place or a worse one, he writes. I haven't gone any place because Derek doesn't exist anymore. As soon as my body stopped functioning and the neurons in my brain ceased firing, I made a remarkable transformation. I went from being a living organism to being a corpse, like a flower or a mouse that didn't make it through a particularly frosty night. And his last words from this no-man's-land of hopelessness and despair were to his wife. I loved you deeply. I loved you. I loved you. I loved you. There are these moments when it rises up within us this This fear that Derek Miller might be right. That eventually the night might win. We may exult for a day in all of these bright hopes. We may have for a time these brilliant inventions. We may enjoy for a period these sparkling entertainments. But sooner or later the cold dark shadow of sin and death seems to have its way with us all. And there arises, often in the secret place, we don't talk about with other people this this wondering if maybe darkness will fall over our character, our relationships, our bodies, our public life, and that will just be it. And maybe all we really can do is fight for a while and, and then just await that sad trumpet call that marks... The end of hope and of all that we've loved. I think the disciples, I think the disciples of Jesus must have felt this way, at least some of them. I mean, as they stood there on that hillside long ago, As they saw, literally, the sky growing dark and darker and darkest. And as they watched the man they loved perishing in that awful way, the sun dying right before them. It would not have seemed strange, perhaps, had One of those Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross picked up a horn and and, and played out that tune which we now know so well, whose words are, Day is done, gone the sun, from the lakes, from the hills, from the sky. And it would have just summed up their despair. It would have just expressed their despair. Because sometimes it gets really dark.
And sometimes in those moments, it can be hard to see that the light is coming. The light is coming. It was January the 30th, 1965. All of England, Great Britain, was in national mourning. Arguably the greatest sun that the empire had at least recently produced was being laid to rest at a great state funeral. The massive procession had filled the avenues of London. Throngs of people had flooded into St. Paul's Cathedral. And a world watched on television as Winston Churchill was being laid to rest. Churchill had orchestrated his entire service. Not surprising. This was the man who, in the darkest days of World War II, during the blitzkrieg that was destroying London, sat in a basement and planned the invasion of Germany when everyone had given up hope. And, and Churchill had installed into this service all of the great hymns of the church, some of which we have sung already today. And, and the beauty of the Anglican liturgy and its words were being expressed as well. But he had also planned a particular flourish. And as the service came to an end and the benediction was rendered by the presiding pastor, uh, a great cry rang out from the horn of a lone bugler that Churchill had arranged to have stationed up in the great dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And the, the melody that was played out by the bugler, you can guess this, was that familiar one, the sounding of taps, the universal signal that day is over. You know, there is a last part to the words to taps that are is less well-known, perhaps, than the beginning. The first part I've already shared with you. Day is done, gone the sun, from the lakes, from the hills, from the sky. And then it continues. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. God is near. And as if that final affirmation changes everything, as it does, suddenly there rang out from the other side of the great dome of that magnificent cathedral a second bugler that Churchill had already arranged to be there as that great Cathedral was filled with the sound of another famous trumpet call that goes like this. Do you know the words to that song? It's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up in the morning. Yes, that's where Churchill knew he was. He was getting up in the morning. This was not a time for... Grief and weeping and darkness, the light had triumphed. 
Bob Russell, a, a favorite pastor of mine, says that it was Churchill's way of communicating that while we say good night here, it's, it's always good morning there. Now, why could Churchill do that? How could Churchill be so absolutely certain of that? How can you and I be sure of that? It was because Churchill had put his hope in the one who had said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. The skeptic may say, well, why believe that? Why should I trust that? That sounds hopeful, but who says it isn't just legend and fantasy? Well, there's an answer to that question. And Churchill knew that as well. You see, when, when you flog a man, a human being, so many times with a cat of nine tail, leather strips, tipped by barbs of metal. When you flog that individual so many times that that their back is laid bare, it's just strips of flesh hanging off. And when you then drag that man out and you force him to carry a huge burden on his back, that particular back and shoulders, a, a significant distance and up a huge hill, And then you force him to the ground and you stretch his arms out and you drive iron nails into his flesh, pinning him to a cross. And then you raise that cross up against the sky. And when you just watch him suffocating there, just unable to catch a breath from the way his body is, Hanging there for hours in the hot sun. And then when you're sure he's dead and you have decided to make extra sure and you take a spear and you run it through his side to pierce his heart to make sure he's extra dead. And then when you take him down and you, you wrap his limp body in Strips of linen and spices, a hundred pounds of spices, so tightly that were he the most phenomenal athlete in the world, he, and a fully alive, he couldn't have moved inside of that set of grave clothes. And when you then take him and you put him inside of a cave, uh, and you lay him in that grave, and you roll a gigantic stone in front of the grave, To seal it. And then when you post carefully chosen elite guards from the Roman army whose one job on pain of their own death is to make sure that nobody gets into that tomb to mess with it. When you have seen these kinds of things take place, you know day is done, gone the sun, S-O-N. It is over. But when suddenly 
the man sits up inside of the tomb. And somehow mysteriously passes through the grave clothes. And removes the stone. And walks out. Like he is the most healthy athlete. Getting up after a gloriously good night's sleep. To the brightest and best morning of his life. And then appears, not just to one or two or three, but to 500 people in various settings. So clearly alive in a way that just redefines what alive even looks like. So much so that these people who just moments, hours before, have been cowering, weeping, mourning, afraid of being caught by the same Roman authorities that had put him up there on that cross. When these people now see him and are utterly convinced of the truth of what he said about his power over life, that they are willing now to go themselves to a torturous death rather than ever deny that he is risen. When this happens, as it's happened in history, you know one thing for absolute certain. This man is whoever he says he is. And he can do whatever he says he can. And beloved, that has implications for you and me. That has reverberations like the sound of a bugle call For every single one of us. It means. My sins. Can be forgiven. Those things that I have in my personal record. Those secrets. Those terrible things. That I've done over the course of my life. That I wouldn't even want to talk about in this public place. Are forgiven. By his grace. And those secrets in your life. They can be forgiven too. What it means is that relationship that you have cherished that is is dead now or seems to be dying can be resurrected, okay? It it can be renewed. It, It means that he can give you new strength where it's failed. He can provide you with new purpose in life where you've lost it. He can give you a new start to get you where you're going. He can renew your family. He can transform this entire nation if we turn to him. He can give you back your loved one, the one you've said goodbye to. He can give that person back to you one day. He can resurrect you, you, to life beyond your grave. Easter trumpets. This good news. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, here's the bottom line. If your life seems to have been marked too much lately by the sounding of taps, hang on. Because Reveille is coming. Okay? I mean, a really big one one day, but even now, the power of Reveille, of the resurrection, is nigh. It's near. It's close to you. 
This is how the Apostle Paul put it after his own life was transformed forever by an encounter with the risen Christ. And he's speaking here of the final Reveille call. Brothers and sisters, he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed. I mean, we want you to know the news about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, and this is the important part, in Him. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I am here today in the name of Jesus Christ and with the voice of the great church of history to encourage you again with these marvelous words. God has such Power And more than that, such desire to lift you up in every single way that you need in this life and beyond this life and the next. But I also want to encourage you. And this will be maybe the most important thing I'll say today. I want to encourage you to pay special attention to that crucial refrain Paul repeats twice in his announcement. You see, while God loves everybody, and I cannot stress this enough. I mean, we have a visual aid. Jesus stretching his arms out upon the cross as if to say, I want to take you all in. I'm doing this for all of you. I love every one of you. While the love of God is for everybody, not just anybody is going to rise when that reveille sounds at the end of time. The biblical promise is that God will raise those who have fallen asleep, pay attention, in him. Paul says it again a little later. The dead in Christ will rise. These are not statements intended to start Fear to spark fear. Just the contrary. They're intended to encourage and to draw us. They're statements of fact like the one where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. They're not intended to exclude. He's intending to show everybody that there's an invitation to come in. Let me try and explain it, if I can, in in some slightly different terms. This past January was, for me, one of the darkest months I think I've been through in a very, very long time. Um, We had come in, uh, at the end of our year, hundreds of thousands of dollars short here at the church, I was thinking it was going to imperil our ability to keep 
doing all that we do and blessing all those mission partners we have around the world. I was in despair about that. Family finances at home were unbelievably tight. We're already covering one kid in college. We've got a second one about to start college. You know, just I'm stratospheric tuition fees. We're just, I'm just feeling the pinch of the finances. Uh, tensions are high because I've been away all the holiday season, you know, December, busy. The tensions, are, it's, it's tough, you know, in family life. I feel disconnected from my loved ones in the family. And I don't know if you noticed it, but winter wouldn't quit. <laughs> Did you notice that? I mean, golly, I, I, I think I have seasonal affective disorder, you know, that sad illness where if the sun doesn't shine and it's gray all the time, I I am so depressed. I mean, if somebody had just taken me out and sort of took me out, I might have been grateful to fall asleep in death, if if you understand. I was just so down during the month of January. In fact, I remember one particular Monday morning. It was It was so bad. I I sat down in this chair and I looked out the window and the snow was coming down again. I mean, my back was so tired from shoveling. You know, I was just so exhausted. I neglected to mention, I have a dog with a bladder problem now. She's old. I'm up all night with this dog. You know, it's like raising infants again. I'm just so exhausted. And the sun is coming down again in this gray sky. And the temperatures are plummeting. It's going to get worse. And I thought, I'm just done. And I lean my head back. And I just surrender. And I just fall asleep. I wake up. It feels like it's, it's the twinkling of an eye. I'm just suddenly, my eyes flutter open and come to my senses and I look around and I look out. The sky is blue. I mean, spectacular blue. And the sun is shining in this cloudless, spectacular sky. And The grass out the window is this iridescent green. I mean, it looks like it's been painted. It's so beautiful. And there are people going by in shorts with tanned legs. And I know you're thinking, I'm in a delusional state at this point. It's finally broken me, right? You're close. I am in another state because I neglected to mention you. That the chair where I fell asleep was in an airplane bound for Palm Springs. (laughs) Here's the lesson. It matters what you're in. Especially if what you're in has the power to take you someplace you can't go on your own strength. If you want to to go to the top of the Willis Tower and, and, and be treated to the magnificent panoramic view from that place. I suggest you get in the elevator. Okay? It's 103 stories up. If you want to know what it's like to float over Napa Valley at sunrise and see the golden rolling hills beneath you, 
I suggest you get in the hot air balloon when you have the opportunity. And if you want to see what Jesus can help you see, if you want to experience all that he wants to help you experience, I recommend that you get into Christ. I recommend that you put your life intentionally into his hands. I I, I urge you to, to put yourself into his promises, into his word. I recommend that you even put yourself back into these seats, these chairs, and see where Christ takes you. You see, one day, there's going to be a final trumpet call. It's coming. There's going to be a call so loud and so bold and so amazing, the entire world, they'll find their knees just buckling beneath the power of that sound. And some of us will find at that moment, it's too late. We miss the gate call. The the door was open for so long But we missed it. We were too preoccupied. We were always putting it off. We were always distracted by something else. We will have missed the moment of opportunity where we could have gone where we do want to go. We missed it. Do not, do not, please do not miss it. Easter is God's quiet bugle call to you. Before the great reveille sounds. It is saying to you and to me. Wake up. Wake up. Get in to the life of Christ. Because if you do. I promise you. You too. Will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, we humbly place ourselves, we humbly place our very lives in your hands today. Some of us for the very first time. We're doing it today, Lord. We're giving our lives to you. Some of us recommitting today. We've gotten off track, Lord. We've been really faltering followers. We are rededicating ourselves today. All of us, Lord, we long to know in our own experience the all-surpassing power with which you raised Jesus from the grave. So lift us up, Lord. Lift us up in all of the ways each of us needs and that you alone can. And let this good morning be the beginning of a glorious new season of hope. Through Jesus Christ we pray. And all of God's people said,